Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, a podcast presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars with regards to game design and publishing. This episode has been recorded at BreakoutCon 2018, Toronto's premier tabletop gaming convention for board games and role-playing games. This recording has been made possible thanks to the organizers of BreakoutCon and the fine contributions of the panel speakers. Now let's get to the show. Episode 149, GM Masterclass. Presented by Robin Laws, Daniel Kwan, Emily Kerbots, and Michelle Lyons-McFarland. Moderated by Corey Reed. So this is the Fast and the Furious movies uh, panel. We're going to be discussing how Fast and Furious movies... Wait, are amazing. Wrong panel, hang on a sec. Okay, are amazing. Yes. Uh, no, this is the GM Masterclass panel. Uh, hope you're all here to learn about jamming. We have a bunch of great uh, panelists here to talk to you. Uh, we are open to questions throughout. If you have a question, put your hand up. And this gentleman, whose name I failed to read off his card. Conan. The Barbarian. Conan. Yes. Conan will bring you an index card and a pen, and you can just write your question on that, and he'll slide it up to me. And then we'll get the questions going without having to interrupt anybody. All right. And uh, our eight seconds are up, I'm sure. So, GM Masterclass, I'm going to start with the panelists on the far end from me. This is Emily Kerr-Boss, who publishes under Black and Green Games. Uh, notably was nominated for the Diana Wynne-Jones uh, for her romance trilogy. Is that two years ago now? Uh, last year. Just last year, okay. Good. It's just been a long year. Uh, she's also designer of Bubble Gumshoe, is that right? Which we'll say more about Gumshoe in just a second. And she is running the Living Game Conference in Boston this May, which you can find at livinggames.com, I think. And they'll have lots of panels just like this. It's about live games. That's right. Livinggamesconference.com. Next. Yeah. Emily. Emily. <laughs> Next, Emily, we have Robin Laws, uh, who's designed some games. Uh, most recently, things like the Gumshoe system that you might have heard of powers games like Night Start Agents and Time Watch, also Bubble Gumshoe. Uh, he has a new book coming out in May, is that right? That's correct. Called Beating the Story, which is about uh, the production of fiction in all different kinds of formats. I assume games feature in there as well? Um, it is a follow-up to Hamlet's Hit Points. So if you want the game version of that, get Hamlet's Hit Points. Got if it. If you want all other kinds of fiction, get Beating the Story. <laughs> and upcoming is The Yellow King. The Yellow King role-playing game. Is that a new system entirely? It is, is a gumshoe game. A gumshoe game. Fantastic. I'm so excited. Can't it's going to be amazing. The Yellow King is like sunshine, right? And happiness. Exactly. <laughs> that's what yeah. that's about. Yeah, and I have, okay. a, I have a little symbol to show you that will change your <laughs> way of thinking forever. <laughs> uh, and next to Robin, we have Michelle Lyons McFarland. Oh, applause for Robin. Oh, yes. Uh, Michelle Lyons McFarland is the president of the Indie Game Design Network, otherwise known as IGDN. Uh, and the co-owner of Groaning Door. Growling, Growling Door. I'm sorry. Groaning Door sounds very different. Fair. <laughs> yes. Fair. Yes, I didn't mean to apply anything. Growling Door Games. Uh, and she is finishing up a PhD in 18th century British literature and material culture. Have I got that right? You yes, yeah. you do. Awesome. Give it up for Michelle. <laughs> and finally, sitting next to me, we have Daniel Kwan, who is the lead facilitator and co-founder of Level Up Gaming is the head of the Royal Ontario Museum's popular D&D program, and is lead designer at Dundas West Games. 
His debut game is Ross Rifles, which is premiering here at Breakout. Yeah, and another game called Zany Zoo. It's like Madagascar the movie, but the game. <laughs> Excellent. And in his spare time, he finishes up a PhD in archaeology at UT. So, uh, the format today is very loose. We're just going to ask the panelists questions and listen to them say intelligent things. It sounds good for everybody. Semi intelligent things. Pretty intelligent. I was going to say, that's a high bar. That's a really high bar. Hey, I'm a demanding moderator. What can I tell you? Okay, we're going to start off with preparation as sort of the theme and getting ready for a game. So, if you have questions, do feel free to put your hand up and Conan the Barbarian will uh, deliver your questions to me. But we'll start off with something really simple, and I'll start here next to me, and we'll move down the line. Daniel, tell us about preparing for a game. How do you prepare for a game? I actually, it's, it's kind of weird. I keep a dream journal. It's a D&D dream journal or an RPG dream journal. I have really weird dreams sometimes, and I get up in the middle of the night, and I write them all down. And I like to see what like what interesting plot hooks I can get, and what interesting like creatures or, or visual landscapes I can come up with in my games. And I usually look through it, and half of it's garbage. And the other half is like kind of usable. So when I come up with a game, I usually have like a theme. What do I want to explore? Rather than I want them to go from A to B to C to D, like what what do I want to explore? Do I want to explore because I work with children? Do I want to explore you know themes of racism? Do I want to talk about the modern refugee crisis, but set in D and D? And then I kind of go from there. So I look for a theme first, and then I, I work work down. Got it. Thank you, Michelle. What uh, comes to mind? Um. So I'm a very uh, player-focused GM. Um, I really like my players' reactions when they go, oh, you know, that that kind of thing. Uh, so I tend to look at, I go back and I dig up their characters and their backstories, and I'm like, okay, so what am I bringing out here, and how can I tie this into this other thing? And, and that's kind of my planning method, is I end up kind of retroactively tying all of this stuff together. This grand and glorious montage. <laughs> Grand and glorious. Well, sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> Robin, what can you talk about? Uh, so, someone who uh, designing games is my full-time job. So, uh, my full-time job of designing games interferes with my prep time for running games. <laughs> so, uh, when uh, when it's Thursday, which is game night, uh, I uh, generally have to shift kind of radically from okay, I've it's five o'clock. Hopefully, I've finished my uh, quota of uh, words or editing for the day. Now, what am I going to do? Uh, with the players coming in. And so uh, I need to do a uh, really sharp, minimal prep that will lead in an interesting direction in some uh, way. So that uh, I quite often, when I'm just uh, spinning a game for my own group, I'm doing something uh, improv focused. And uh, as Michelle uh, does as well, something that is player focused. What can I do that will bring uh, people, the, the characters that I know we're dealing with, and the players, and give them uh, something to get going on? I do not have the most sandboxy group. I generally have to give them a big old clue, and then partway through, someone will knock on their door and give them information. Uh, <laughs> but uh, in general, I just start with a premise. Uh, where can this possibly go? Uh, but the key is not to have one idea to put in front of them, but a choice, something uh -huh. that they uh, can activate uh, rather than, OK, here's your thing for the week. Here's two things. Which one do you want to do? And of course, both choices have to be interesting. So I go to the table with an idea that can go in at least two different directions and uh, just a list of names. Now, uh, the rule system that you pick to go with that style has to be one where you can uh, pull characters uh, out of the air and other whatever other stats. So you'll notice that my the games I design tend to require very little in the way of 
uh, math or advanced figuring out of this character or that character, but rather, you know, in Gumshoe, the character stats are like three lines. Or, uh, you know, Feng Shui, I think they're also three lines, and they're easy to pick and go. And uh, if you are doing something that requires uh, a lot more prep, uh, that advice is not so great, that you will want to have a big store of uh, game stats and characters and places for like a D&D game or RuneQuest or something where you can't just uh, come up with stats on the fly. So uh, you have to make sure that your uh, prep style matches uh, the prep requirements of the rule set that you're using. You mentioned having a list of names. <coughs> Yes. Can you say a little more about that? Um, so there's just a, a random name generator site uh, on the internet that if I'm playing a modern day game, I can just generate modern names. But if, for example, as in the first part of the Yellow King campaign there in uh, Paris in 1895, I will have to then do enough research to have enough realistic sounding uh, first and last names for characters that they'll meet in Paris. And so it's just a list of names and then who those people are depends on where they go and who they talk to so that, uh, you know, uh, Sylvie Richard uh, may be a, a washerwoman or a society matron depending on where they go and who they decide to, to talk to. But uh, names or, uh, so whatever it is that you find hard to think of on the fly is something you want to make a list of in advance. So you may be great at thinking of 19th century French names, but not so good at uh, thinking of occupations that people have, or uh, you know, whatever it is, whatever you find hard to just think of off the top of your head is what you should have as your sort of uh, list of improv things to grab from and, and incorporate into the, the game. Got it. That makes me, I, I'm interested in tools that you, Daniel mentioned dreams, uh, Michelle, you mentioned kind of looking at the players, kind of sheets and information you have on them. Wrong with the names. Emily, I'm going to start you off with a new question, which is tools for prep. Are there any specific tools that you have found really useful or practices could be? Well, one that came to mind as Robin was talking about the list of names is, it, I think the name is simply called the Book of Names. It's a book that's edited by Jason Morningstar, who's another game designer. It's available on Zulu. And it's a great, I, always, I have two copies. I tend to bring them to uh, game uh, sit, uh, sessions, especially the first time around. It's easy for people to grab uh, a name from whatever background their character is coming from, and, and they were. Um, uh, it was put together by a broad selection of people, so it has a lot of different types of names. So I love having tools like that that can make it easy because th the things that people stumble over can make it hard for them to get rolling in the game. So if they had, they have something to call upon as well as me as the GM. It helps us all kind of group think a little bit, um, and. Um, uh, to go back a little bit to the other answer and maybe also to, to answer this one as well, one of the things that I like to do to prep is really just to cheat a little bit. Um, in, my game <laughs> in my game design, I tend to marry the character creation with the setting creation, which m takes a lot of load off me as a GM mm -hmm. in order to be able to um, figure out what the players are going to be interested in. I can bring maybe a few seeds that I want to bring in, and then we weave together everything that they are also creating. So picking games that provide that kind of box for you uh, is one of my favorite ways to prep for a game. It's one of my favorite aspects in a game design when I see that it really helps me to get ready for a game. Uh, I'll send this to the whole panel. If anybody has an answer, let's think about it. What are some key questions you ask yourself when you're getting ready for a game? Michelle, you mentioned that you ask yourself, like, what can I do with these characters? Perhaps to these characters. 
Yes, very much that. Um, uh, so, so one of the questions that I ask myself, um, it's easy to, to ask yourself, is this going to be fun? And there's no good answer to that because what I think is fun may not be universally applicable. I mean, I'm in grad school. I'm not a good judge generally of what everyone should do. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but what I can ask myself uh, is, is this compelling, right? Is this something that my characters have expressed an interest in? Right? I can ask them leading questions as we come up, I can make notes, and then I can refer back to those so that you know I know that if I put somebody's significant other in danger, um, that that's gonna be something that they actually wanna play out. Right? If I make uh, the changeling in my Dresden Files game make the choice as to whether he wants to be fey or human, that's something that he's already expressed interest in. Right, so I can I can make those choices and those interests relevant in the game because I already know they're compelling. The players have told me what they want, so then I can like just play on that. And I think kind of going off of what Robin said earlier, one of the things that I, that's really important to me with, with games is that you know, I have to make sure that the game gives you know, the players enough agency to take over the story or lead the story in a direction that they find compelling. Because I, I mean, when we're playing role playing games of any kind, we're we're just collaborating together on a story. You know, some, sometimes we think that like the, the game that you're gonna play is the story that I wrote, and you're gonna do it in the way that I wrote it. You're gonna go through, set, you're gonna go from the village to the forest. You're gonna conveniently find the dungeon. You're gonna go through the dungeon in the manner I want, and come out and win the day. Fortunately, players always do what we expect. And yeah, we expect players to do that, but they don't. Um, <laughs> so, so it has what I created or prepared for, you know open enough for, the, for them to say, oh, I, I find this NPC far more interesting. Let's just make our whole game about that NPC. Right. Yeah. Any other questions? That... Uh, well, a big question for me is just, who's showing up tonight? Uh, <laughs> uh, because if you're running something that's player-focused and you're running an extended series that relies on uh, sort of player-generated uh, subplots, um, you have to know, you know, if you spend a lot of time thinking about uh, Susie's uh, character, but uh, in fact, uh, Susie's not going to be there that night. You've wasted a bunch of time, and you're uh, and you're having you're not paying attention to who is there. So, uh, one uh, broader piece of advice I would have is create a Slack channel for your group, uh, which includes not only the uh, in or out feature, which you know, people can tell you whether they're showing up to game or not. So mm -hmm. you can focus your thoughts on the people who are showing up. Uh, but also, you can do a lot of off-book stuff on, on Slack. Uh, you can do the character generation. You can get people thinking about uh, where they want to go. You can have off-group uh, discussions there. If you have a, if you're playing a game that has enough rules in it for people to argue about, and you have rules <laughs> arguers, uh, during the session, you can say, we'll discuss that on Slack. My ruling now is, eh, uh, and keep going. Uh, and of course, and spoiler, they don't want to discuss it on Slack. I don't see. <laughs> is there anybody in the room who doesn't know what Slack is? Is there anybody? Slack is a messaging app. Uh, you can, for free, create a little Slack channel where you and your friends can communicate privately. Uh, yeah. So have yeah. some have some way of communicating with your players and find out when they're showing up and and all that other stuff too. Awesome. Thank you. Is there anything? And this has come up. In kind of poked at this. Is there anything that you've learned is just pointless to prepare? 
like maybe you used to put some energy into preparing stuff like this, and you don't anymore. You can always repurpose your work. Let's, let's not be naive, people. If, if you have a big ogre fight that you've designed, and they say, you know what, we're not going to fight those ogres. We're not going to ogre town. We're going to the jungle. Uh, well, in the jungle, they run into some creatures who look very jungly, but under the hood have some ogre stats. Right. <laughs> they don't know it's coming. You can just leave them. If they want to go the opposite way, whatever was coming in one way is just... Yeah. Yeah. Right. Now, the, the story implications of... Uh, you know, running into jungle dudes instead of ogres should be different, right? right? Their choice not to encounter ogres should matter. But under the hood, you can still use those numbers. Yeah. Um, I think that the idea that I've... Uh, the thing that I don't do anymore is I don't run games that I find difficult to parse on the fly. I used to try and do that. Like, I, I worked at Watsi. I worked on D&D 3.5. I have reverse engineered 18th level dragonborn paladins, right, with prestige classes. They're not worthy. <laughs> so, so I've, I've done this, um, but what I discovered is that I didn't enjoy running it, right? There are good stories to be told there. They're not my stories. They're, they're not ones that benefit from, from my particular way of doing things um, because there's too much overhead for me, right? Um, but I found other systems that I work much better with. So my, my group may be interested in, in something. I know that's not the game for me. We can find a compromise on maybe a third game altogether, or I can find out what they like about that that I can bring in. Um, but I, I don't waste my time on things that, that stress me out and I'm not good at that were then getting in the way of the play experience. Because you're supposed to have fun too, right? You're not just what? serving your players. <laughs> I, don't tell my players that. <laughs> uh, okay, so I'm going to move from, from prep stuff into actual play. We've had a few audience questions. We're going to get to those. Uh, so, you know, if you wrote down a question, keep your ears open. Uh, but to start, like, starting off a game session, how do you make sure you have an engaging kickoff and, you know, you kind of capture everybody's attention at the table? Um, this is sort of adapted from live action play, but it works in tabletop as well. Um, a lot of times for uh, framing scenes, I make sure to watch out for what the players are reacting to, like you were saying before. So if we're having two characters who have a, a, um, a conversation and then one of them talks about something that obviously was deeply emotionally important to them, all right, let's go to that next scene. It'll be a flashback. Uh, so having the ability, depending on the game you're playing, but being able to tie it to what the characters are expressing and what the players are reacting to uh, tends to make for a really good, strong opening. Thank you. Other thoughts on how to get it rolling? Um, I, I would make a counter argument in favor of a slow burn of easing into a game session. Especially Now, uh, in a uh, convention or one-shot format, you want to do the opposite. But if it's your weekly game, uh, people want to get in, they want to settle in. It takes a while for people's creative process to get going. And so uh, often, uh, if you start them with the, you know, let's recap last week, remember what we did last week, and try and figure out what that was, and then slowly, okay, so here's choices that are in front of you. So that uh, that begins, uh, so it's not a big uh, start where the uh, ninjas are coming through the uh, window with swords and stuff and getting everybody uh, rattled, but that because that's a choice that you're making for them in the name of excitement. <coughs> but if it's do you want to go to Ogre Town or Jungleville, it's going to take. That's not super exciting for them to sit there mm -hmm. and talk that out. Mm -hmm. But it's them making a choice, 
And mm -hmm. uh, I certainly know that with my own creative process when I'm writing, it takes a while to get going and get rolling and get everybody transitioned from uh, snacking and talking about pop culture mode into actually focusing together and getting everybody to make a group decision, although that would not be the most exciting opening for a TV episode, is often a great opening for uh, a game session because, again, you're giving them a choice to chew over rather than just forcing them to respond to a big dramatic ball that you're throwing at their heads. See, I do something kind of in between those two where I'll do the recap when we sit down because that kind of gets people's attention focused. And then I, I think a lot through music, so I will find a piece of music that's, theat that's thematically appropriate for what we're going to do that evening, and we'll play through the song, and then we'll start playing. Because then they've got the events in their mind, they've got the character in their mind, and they've got music to listen to so they can kind of play those two things off of each other. And I find that at that point, it makes a good transition, and they've been quiet long enough, that, they're, <laughs> that they can pick up and, and move from there. Yeah, I think, I think I do a bit of both. Uh, with, with my home group, we usually just like have that slow burn. We kind of relax, we gossip, you know, talk, eat. And then, but at work, because uh, at, the, at the Royal Terror Museum or with Love Love Gaming, uh, you know, our clients are between the ages of 10 and 14. And yeah, <laughs> we'll let it up. Um, and you know, you have to get them hooked. You got you to start right away. We, have, we start our morning with like a lecture in, in the gallery in the museum, and then we have like two hours of gaming. And so we have to make those two hours count and for everybody to be engaged. And so, so with me, what I usually do is I have you know, a threat. I usually have some sort of you know, time limit and then have some sort of treat to offer them. And then that gets everybody together on the first session. And then from there, we can kind of do the slow burn into another storyline into something else that they want to do. But I like to have something intense to bring everybody together, especially because the people who are always playing, especially on the first day of my program, might not have ever met each other. They're, you know, you're, imagine if you're 11 years old again and you're playing D&D for the first time, shake your head, <laughs> playing D&D for the first time with five or six strangers. You need something to bring you together. So that, uh, the, I have a question here from the audience about working with children. What kind of techniques work well with children? Specifically, uh, like six year, like even younger than yeah. we're talking about, ten to fourteen, like six year olds. Do you or does anybody else in the panel have any thoughts on on working with children, or a mix of children and adults? All of my playtests at this con have been a mix of children and adults, mm. um, and they've all gone amazingly well. Um, with work, I really like to use visual aids. Uh, a lot of a lot of kids come and they ask, well. The theater of the mind is difficult sometimes, and it's a skill that you have to develop. Um, so some of them like to have the miniatures. Some of them like to have, you know, the battle map with the drawing on it. My, I actually brought my my favorite uh, my favorite tool for working with kids, and it's like very widely accessible, and it's called the Index Card RPG. Have any ever heard of that? The IC RPG. Um, so it's by Runehammer Games. It's this dude. He used to have a YouTube channel. He still does, but it used to be called Drunkens and Dragons. And now he, he... That sounds promising. He did some very... He, he fixed his branding up, and he called himself Runehammer Games. Um, but it is a game, and they're different themed. I have, like, a, a sci-fi set as well. Um, but they're index cards, and they have little scenes on them. Uh, some of them have NPCs. Some of them just have, like, a... Yeah. Like a horse. Or uh, scary ruins. Um, and I use these, and I put them on the table as we tell our story. When I'm describing a town, I'm like... 
laying out there's a statue with a fountain in the center and I'll put down that I'll put down that tile and it gives everybody a way to you know organize the game in their mind gives them a little bit of inspiration for their imagination uh, and then it keeps them engaged that's great uh, and I find that really works with with younger kids I've played with as for D and D I've played games with with six year olds and it works anybody else uh... There's a game that I wrote with my husband that's an adaptation of Dread, the horror role-playing game that uses Jenga. That's for kids. It's a haunted house game, and when the tower falls over, instead of your character dying, you just run out scared from this haunted house that the teenagers are trying to stay in overnight. Um, and it's good for younger kids from eight on up. Um, and uh, we included sort of a coloring book uh, with some of the illustrations from the, the game in it. And when I've played it with kids, it's really, really a good tool to have them have something that they can be focusing on that's related to the game, but that for the younger kids, it, it, it allows them not to fidget so much. And um, then when it becomes their turn, then they've been listening, they've been using their hands, and they're ready to jump right in. But um, it, they're not just there sitting, twiddling their thumbs while they're waiting for somebody else to give them their turn. And, and what is that called? Uh, it's called Dread House. So, so, so not Dread Babies? No. <laughs> There's, a, there's another game that I really like with younger kids, or if you have short attention spans and not a lot of time, it's the terrible RPG, tears and to tear, um, and your character is just a blank sheet of paper you can just recycle, and you write down like six words, things in theme with what your game is, so if you're playing a fantasy game, like six things that apply to your character, you know, swords, magic, some people just write nuke, I've had that once, <laughs> and when you tell the story and you're playing it out like D&D, you're not rolling dice. What you're doing is you're ripping letters off of those words. And if you don't have a word that goes with the challenge, then something bad might happen. Um, but that's a really good intro game because it requires minimal prep. You don't have to invest in a book that your kid may not like. And It was uh, uh, originally designed for the 200 word yeah. game challenge. So it's super rules light. Super rules. It's one page. One page is the rules. And you can tear it if you want. <laughs> Terrible RPG. T-E-A-R. Yeah, bubble. Okay, uh, so we mentioned a little bit about this in prep, but player surprise, I like to call it. When your players kind of go off the rails in one way or another. You offer them Ogre Town or Jungleville, and they decide to go to the seashore. Well, at the seashore, there's some uh, people who look a lot like ogres. They don't admit that they're ogres, and there's a different narrative outcome. Answer. <laughs> <laughs> Any other uh, thoughts on that sort of thing when players uh, surprise you? I had this situation happen recently, but I was the player. Is that okay for me to Lead use on. myself as a, as a counterexample? Uh, so a dear, a dear friend of mine was running um, Monster Hearts for several friends of ours, uh, Becky Slit, who's a good game designer. And um, uh, it was getting towards the end of the campaign. I was playing the vampire. She had set up a very elaborate uh, set of uh, confrontation that was going to happen between us and the, the demon that had taken over the town. Um, and so I decided in my infinite wisdom to take the car that me and another character had stolen and drive it into the riverboat uh, uh, bar that was the hideout for the, the big bad. And she was like, OK. <laughs> Um, and to her uh, credit, she just rolled with it. And it ended up being, instead of uh, a long, tense negotiation that was political, um, vampires torching demons, and then a nice, very strong emotional confrontation that happened out of the way with the, the, main, the other main characters and just one or two characters. So 
sometimes just rolling with it is fine. And then it became, instead of um, one kind of negotiation, it became a huge spectacle. And she allowed us to like torch this building and have vampires jumping around. And um, so embracing uh, my strong, silly choice was, was what she did. Anything else that comes up when you're dealing with uh, the crazies? What's it like, what, as a DM, what's it like when a game goes off the rails? Well, the, I think the, the way to think about off the rails yes. is there really are no rails unless those rails lead to a boring situation, right? That, that, was, that was a situation where, oh, something equally exciting that I have not thought of can now occur, yay. The real problem is when a player drives a situation towards something within, where, where within the reality of the narrative Oh, okay. You would just be arrested now, or this guy would just kill you dead, or um, and so uh, at that point, when you're going toward an uninteresting track that they're determined to go on, I, I'm always a big advocate of let's break character for a moment and discuss where the story is going to go if you keep driving it there. So it's like, well, do you really want? Everything we've said up about this mob boss has said that he would not if you've just slapped it. If you slap him in the face now because he's insulted you, it breaks the reality of this world that we've established. If anything happens other than you winding up in the East River, do, are you? Is that what you want to have happen, or do you want to suggest to me some other way that this will go some way interesting, other than your character being dead? And right. so break it out of the uh, world and characters and into GM and players because. Uh, players sometimes will focus on their uh, emotion of what you know. I'm just mad at this gang boss, and I don't want you know. I, I just want to be irresponsible and crazy. Uh, and you know, maybe you have a great idea for how he could escape and not be killed or, or whatever. But if there's somewhere where you can't see anywhere back to somewhere interesting, break it out and warn them where it's going and say, do you? Is this really where you want to take your character? Because that you're going to be creating a new character soon. Does anyone have a story about like when that happened and they had no idea what to do? Is there, a, I'm sure, any of us who have ever run a game have run into that feeling. Well, God. my experience is, I will say, are you sure you want that to happen? Right. And they're sufficiently <laughs> that. emotionally yeah. doubled down on it that they'll go, yeah, and then okay, well, you're, okay, your character's dead. They're not happy with that, <laughs> but they made the choices that led there, and they didn't give you a a way out, right? But it's like sometimes you've got a, there's a gap between player knowledge and character knowledge. Uh, the character understands what the implications might be, the player does not. Right, or an over-identification between the player mm -hmm. and the character where they are unable to break out of their feelings about what they want for the character. As a player, I really appreciate it when the GM gives me that out because it is easy to not realize you've made a decision that's going to have some ramifications later on. So. Yeah. I appreciate the, the mercy given to maybe step back, or, or you can even say, okay, well, you're about to do that, and then your friend maybe intervenes. So there's some ways that you can modulate the situation so it doesn't have to uh, nuke what you've done, but can just sort of shift and change. We had a question from the audience about handling problem players. Are there any thoughts about problem? Have you what? experienced a problem player? Pro problem is broad. What? I was going to yeah. say, can we define that term a little bit? Like, do you, do you mean, whoever asked that question, do you mean like somebody who's trying to constantly undermine the group? Yeah, that, that's, um, that's generally what I meant. Somebody who's, uh, uh, you know, it could be the player who's always, always interrupting everyone else, the player who's running off in their own direction, you know, 
constantly going against counter to everyone else and not involving himself in play, or uh, you know the, the the player who's just deliberately being you know going you know trying to burn down everything else that everyone else is doing. I, I would say. How, how do you, the specific talk. question was, how do you handle them without having to spend the entire game trying to manage them? Take them aside, uh, not in game, not in front of the other players and describe the behavior that you've just described. Uh, ask them to uh, be more aware of everybody else's fun and to be collaborative. Uh, and if they don't, kick them out. Because you would never go bowling on a bowling team where one person in the team throws the ball down the other alley every week. You would just dis disassociate yourself. And there's all sorts of uh, social uh, niceties and constraints, especially in geek culture, about uh, having to put up with people who are uh, toxic. But that's toxic uh, if they refuse to be aware of other people and are wrecking everybody else's fun. Uh, and so I'm a hardliner on that. Talk to them. If they don't fix it, kick them out. I'm kind of in, uh, I, I really agree with that. Uh, I, I'm also in a scenario where I can't kick the player out of my group. That player is a customer. Or that player is a client, and uh, this gig might be my livelihood or something, and you have to deal with the player. So I have a rule, and it's, and I outline it very clearly when we go over safety tools and everything at the beginning of the game. And it's, you know, in this role-playing game, regardless of the game we're playing, you can do anything you want, except when it, you know, interferes with somebody else's fun or it's at the expense of somebody else. And you know, if they end up doing that, I remind them. You know, this is the rule. You can do whatever you want, but this is, you know, infringing upon so and so's ability to have fun and participate because they deserve to be at this table just as much as you do. And in my case, this, you, they have just as much of a right to be in my class and to learn as much as the other kid. And you just have to pull them aside. We talk about this, and it usually works out that way. And it works out well. We have a question here. Uh, it goes back to what we we're talking about about helping players, uh, any advice on helping players understand the consequences of their actions without taking away their agency? Let me address that particularly. Any thoughts from the panel? It's a tough one. Um, well, you, you could frame it as a choice. So uh, to go back to the slapping the mob boss thing, it's like, well, if you slap the, mob, slap the mob boss, given the realism of this setting, something horrible has to happen to you. Uh, so do you want something horrible to happen to you or do you want to get back at the mob boss in some other way that doesn't break the reality of the world? So you're not shutting the person down on their desire to have an emotional spike against the mob boss, but you're, um, now, you are putting that in a particular way where you are heavily steering them toward one direction. So technically you're taking away their agency, but in reality you're giving them the illusion of choice, which is a very important uh, tool in every GM's uh, toolkit because there uh, may be seven or eight possible cool endings to the story that you're all heading toward. But if uh, a, uh, they're heading towards something that isn't fun and interesting, allow them to think that they are choosing <laughs> something interesting, right? That their the agency is about making interesting choices and stories in real time. Thank you. Is there anything you've learned to pay attention to at the table? Maybe early warning signs that something's going awry? 
phones. Say more. Um, we all have our phones, right? And they're always with us. And you can tell that your players are starting to like drift on you when they start going. Or just like, right, because they're not in the scene, but that also means they're not paying attention. And if they're not paying attention, they're not paying attention for a reason, right? Now it could be that your player just has focus issues, in which case you need to work with them um, somehow. But, but that's also a sign that their attention is drifting, that something at the table is, has gone awry, right? And then sometimes that's a good time to call for a break. Sometimes that's a good time to uh, shift the spotlight, right? To reward people for staying engaged. Um, whether that's with time to, to talk and be the center of attention or a, a chance for experience or a chance to find out a clue or something that's important to the plot. You have various carrots that you can use. If you're not seeing responses, maybe it's time to up that ratio a little bit and make them more obvious so that you can get that engagement back. Because once people start disengaging, even the people who are engaged don't have as much fun. It's also really important to know that people you know, display their engagement differently. So if you're playing with a group of friends, and hopefully you know them, or if you know, you're playing uh, with, with, one of my, with one of my jobs, it's you know, playing with gamers on the spectrum. And, and everybody interacts with your fiction differently, everybody shows their enthusiasm differently. So it's really important not to make assumptions right off the bat. Just, just wanted to add to that. Thank you. We have a question here about very large groups. When you're working with a very large group, like like a LARP, say, or like 20, 30 people, how do you keep the majority of the players active while you're personally running a scene with a smaller side group? So just a LARP Having question. a team of GMs is a really great thing when you've got yep. a large group, if, if you can, yeah. uh, ideally. Um, a lot of the games that I run are very structured, so it's really nice to have a high ratio of GMs, maybe like one to four or five players. Um, if you can't, um, making sure that the mechanics that you're using are, are uh, appropriate to the um, time period, time frame that you have and the understanding of the players so that you're not having people bogged down for like half an hour dealing with some conflict or combat, um, which would take the, the intense focus of whoever's running the game. Uh, if it can be done in a couple of minutes, then that's ideal. Or even just moment to moment by the players themselves negotiated. Um, one of my favorite combat um, uh, mechanics is the slow motion combat. Can I demonstrate with you? So uh, basically, yeah, you go like um, uh, the Six Million Dollar Man and go slow motion <laughs> in for a punch. And that is indeed the resolution. Whoever's receiving the blow decides how it lands. And this works for some games, it doesn't work for others, but Robin decided to mirror that I was going to hit him. He could have it, it, it doesn't work for the problem player in the back, but yeah. Yes, exactly. Those <laughs> yeah. you might have to work with. Um, but ba basically making sure that your runtime and your team are, are fitted to whatever is needed. Uh, we have a question here about five-room dungeons. I guess that's a thing. Does the panel have thoughts on five-room dungeons? What is literally question, a dungeon with five-room dungeons? The question is, what are the panel's thoughts on five-room dungeons? Sounds Thanks. exciting. Can we I get more fun. detail about that? What's, what is? It's a, it's a dungeon format for design that you... Uh, used to create it has a very set number of elements. There's a entrance and a guardian. There's a role-playing challenge. There's uh, a, uh, a 
puzzle challenge, a combat challenge, and a resolution with some sort of twist. Um, it sounds like a like a, it's um, a formula. A, or I was going to say a rhyme meter for a dungeon. You know, like we have haiku or. or yeah. <laughs> sounds like the panel doesn't have a lot of thoughts on it. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting. I mean, it, will, it would be interesting if you could just apply that five room dungeon to yeah. your whole story, not just the dungeon itself. Mm -hmm. The whole campaign. Yeah. 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 We walked into a sonnet, and there were ogres there. Oh, yeah. what if I would so play that game. Yeah, I would play that. I would play that, play that like crazy. Uh, sauna battle earlier. Eastern provinces. This came up earlier. I just want to. Is there a nice way of saying the DM's ruling on this is final? End of discussion. Uh, yes, that. That's you say like that. That's the way. That's great. We should take that up later. But for now, this is what we're doing. Yeah, the, the, and it, it, actually, yes, it's final for the moment. If you want to argue with me out of the game about this, you know, this particular combo, whatever, you can talk my ear off all you want afterwards. And again, they never do because the point of that person is they're trying to suck up oxygen in the room and yeah, right. uh, have fun by uh, being oppositional. So we're going to move into the wrap-up session when you're wrapping up a, a game and, and reflecting on how it happened. So how do you wrap up a session and make it satisfying? As you get to the end. Depending on the pace of the game, I would really like to check in with the players to make sure that there's no uh, threads that they haven't dealt with or that they wanted to bring in before we end the, the session. Right. Um, and then for me, one of the things that I've learned I like to do, especially in a running campaign, is to make a note of the things that are like the what I imagine the to-do list of those characters will be for the next session, mm -hmm. which brings us back to beginning, because then I can have a really clear list of what it seemed like was important so that we can carry that over till next time. Awesome. Assuming uh, the end of a session rather than the end of a campaign, right. I have my eye on the clock. Uh, I want something big or new to happen uh, around uh, you know 9:30 or so, uh, and uh, I steer things in that uh, direction. If not, I will have you know a coda scene like at the end of you know the Flasher Arrow or whatever, where all of a sudden a new development occurs. Yeah. Um, uh, and failing all of that, I also have uh, my iPad open, I have Spotify there, and I uh, have a song to be the cue that's somehow related to the thing. So, you know, they've met werewolves, okay, time to time to get the CCR, get Bad Moon Rising, <laughs> or, you know, they've run into witches, I put a spell on you, whatever whatever that is, they've been attacked by cougars, it's love cats. Um, <laughs> and, and that gives everybody the sense that the credits are, are rolling. What about when the ending is one of sacrifice, loss, or some kind of a bittersweet ending? We had a question from the, from the audience. Uh, then this. you get Canto Pop, uh, which is <laughs> <laughs> the sad music that plays in the, uh, in the uh, montage sequence where you remember how great Shao Yan Fat yep, was before right. he got mowed down by bullets. Oh, <laughs> That's yeah. a sad now. Yeah, yeah. Any other thoughts on I think so sacrifice or it's just important to debrief on that. Yeah, okay. Like, you know, you, you can have the end of your scene, the end of your game, but also out of game, it's important to be like, how does everybody feel about that? Um, what do we like? What What do we want to do next time? It also helps you with prep. Mm -hmm. um, also, if they're doing some kind of sacrifice, if this is a big emotional moment, let them have their big emotional moment, right? Let the table settle and be quiet if that's the way they want to go with it. Um, so that people can process and feel that because that's that's one of the big things we play for, um, depending on your group, of course. But but oftentimes, you know, that that's the payoff. So don't rush that. Let them let them kind of have it for a minute before you wrap everything up. And often some some games do have like a mechanical way of ending them, like ten candles for one, when the final candle gets blown out. 
gives you that sense of right. finality right. to the game. Highly recommend buying that game. Is there anything else you always try to remember as a game draws to a close? Um, yeah. Uh, it's just a game. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, things happen in games. Some, some can be really intense. Sometimes you can feel uh, betrayed while playing games. But, it, but in the end, you know, what happens in character is it happened in character. It might not necessarily mean this person wants to undermine you in real life or hates you in real life. Uh, thing that is, this question is actually for me because I have a terrible memory. Uh, how do you keep track of what happened during a game? This is the thing where I get stymied all the time. My players are like, "Oh yeah, so last session we did this." I'm like, "No, what?" So how do you keep track of what happened during the session? I love it when there's a scribe. Often there's a player who's willing mm -hmm. to take notes as you go along. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes we tweet what's happening in our games, which is kind of fun to be able to look back after next time. Um, but if there is somebody who's dedicated, it's really hard to do it if you're running the game because there's so many balls that you're juggling. Um, but there's a lot of players who are really invested and, and enjoy that. That might even be a good way for them to feel focused while they're playing. Uh, and then if you can just write it up and put it on a website, then you're really in good shape. But otherwise, we usually in our game just um, start the game by reading over the notes from last time, and it really helps us all get back on the same page. Yep, notes in a blog. Notes in a blog. Yeah. Right. So uh, we have a bunch of questions here that are really about um, just sort of games in general, running games in general. Um, we've got about 10 minutes left, so uh, what was the best NPC you ever created? I'm just going to go down the line, start with Emily. Just give us an NPC that you created that you remember with fondness. Um, one of my first NPCs was the, the terrible NPC that you make when you're you know fresh out of high school and your GM goes, Thank you very much for the loaded shotgun that you just handed me to shoot you with. Uh, you know, she was a escaped serial killer who was a mage, and she had a wild natural telepathic talent, and so uh, it was a ridiculous character. But I loved her, and my GM uh, did well by throwing her in. She was the grenade that got thrown into a bunch of different parties, so gotcha. it worked out really well. So how about NPCs when you're the GM? Characters from your oh, end. I'm sorry, you said That's NPC. What, I I meant to. Oh. <laughs> I, I've got one. What do you got? It, it kind of was a PC, and it became an NPC. So I had this long-running game of Night Witches with a group of my students. And one of the students got really attached to his character, and you know our, our session, our program, ultimately came to an end. And he had role-played that character so well then, and had developed such a complex story for that character that I just took the character and became an NPC. So the next time we played Night Witches with all new characters, it was a really delightful surprise for him to, to actually see his old character and interact with oh, it. Um, so I think my favorite one was the one that like really you know validated my, my players' own, yeah. own skills and experience. Thank you. Um, so one of my characters uh, came up with an ex-boyfriend named Mickey. Um, Mickey was that boyfriend that you really shouldn't have in high school when you're like running a little bit wild but you end up having him and then you end up like moving out and you move in with this guy and he gets into some stuff because he's always trying to make money kind of fast but and then he sells you to a demon and that because he was just dressed in files um, and, and the, the purchase didn't work out, but he was trying to, and obviously that broke up the relationship. But Mickey went on to have some success in life, and he kept showing up. 
in, whenever we need a bad guy because he was in with the demon community. He was working his way up the hierarchy, right? So Mickey would show up and he'd just be like, hi, I've been waiting to see you again. And all of my table would just go, Ear! and I felt so good about that because, I mean, Mickey was not a good guy, but he was a whole lot of fun to play and everybody responded. I didn't expect that level of response, but it was a lot of fun. It's often great rather than to think of a particular uh, NPC uh, who has who dominates the story because then that character uh, will take too much space to think in terms of a dynamic. So that dynamic of the, the, the frenemy dynamic is a great one where it's someone, we can't kill him, we kind of need him sometimes, but he's also really annoying and we want to kill him mm-hmm. is, is a great dynamic. Or the... You, you know the quasi helpful familiar who is who is annoying, but you need him in there because uh, that way they're defined in relationship to the other characters rather than just being someone who uh, is uh, you know is another PC essentially that you are running, which is a, a a thing that used to be more common, but is still a big no-no. So if you ever find yourself tempted to have your uh, NPCs making decisions that drive the story. That's not what they're there for. Right. They're there to give uh, choices uh, to the players that will cause them to drive the story in relationship to that. Thank you. Uh, this is an interesting question. What's the best piece of advice to give someone to convince them to GM for the first time? Um, it's like having a front row seat at uh, one of the most amazing stories that your friends will tell, and you get to be there helping them do it. Um, that, that's the feeling that I get a lot of times, especially running games at conventions with people that I've never met before. And afterwards, I just feel so privileged to have been able to witness this. Um, so and that, that's, that's the big pitch that I would have. Go ahead. Thank you. I use distributed GMing games. Um, so technically GMless, uh, but but something where we all do a little bit because oftentimes uh, at my table at least those people are women um, and they are interested in games but they ha- don't they don't realize that's a thing that they can do um, so I get them into it by doing it where we all kind of take turns doing a little bit of that and that tends to build their confidence and then before you know it they're gaming and we support them and we let them know that we're not going to pick on them afterwards and we provide that emotional support at the table and then they're running games and it's fantastic can you give us an example of one of those games um with a distributed gming yeah a tragedy in five acts a tragedy in five five acts is a one-shot shakespearean-esque game uh you don't have to know shakespeare you don't have to speak an iambic pentameter um but it sets up a sort of tragic arc um, we played this yesterday and we had five characters who were animals living in a park and we had oh it, it ended up being called much ado about nuts it was <laughs> it was amazing but everybody takes a turn being a director where you start a scene you end a scene you call in characters um, and it's collaborative in that you're all providing ideas for what's going to happen so it really kind of trains you into the GM role but nobody has it for the entire evening so it works out nicely that way. Thank you. I'm gonna, we have a couple more audience questions, and we're getting short on time, so I'm just going to zip through these. Uh, getting back into a game after there's been a big break. Any thoughts on that? Uh, consider a time jump. So, uh, so that uh, a bunch of stuff has changed. Uh, you're a year in the uh, uh, a year of a storyline has advanced, 
and the thing is, so what have you been doing for the last year? Or here's the big change in situation, so that the break works for you rather than against you. We did that in a Knights Black Agents game where we actually had half the group change characters. Um, so it was a time jump and it was also a character jump and it let us kind of pick back up without having to remember everything. Uh, this is a, I'm not even sure I fully understand this question. However, uh, any thoughts on actors RPGing on webcasts versus average people RPGing with their friends <laughs> in basements? It's amazing. It's wonderful. It makes great spectacle. It also might make people feel like they have to be up here in their acting ability. When, when we're role playing, we're just embodying a character, we're making choices, we're listening to one another, and we're, we're enjoying a story. So. It's wonderful, I think, that having actors be the people that are portraying role-playing games is a great thing because it's inspiring people and it gets people hooked. But I hope that um, over time we can make sure that people understand that they don't have to be an actor. They don't have to be uh, amazing at portraying a role for other people in order to enjoy this hobby. Uh, but if you're a little trepidatious and you're watching actors and you think that they're amazing, instead of trying to steal everything that they're doing, look for one thing that they're doing to steal. Uh, that, that you can bring into your own game. So the objective is not to, you know, be an expert at improv right off the go, but say, well, what is that person doing that is so fun and so watchable? Mm -hmm. What's this one moment, my favorite moment in this stream? What can I do to bring a similar moment into play the next time I show up? That sounds good. That sounds really right. good. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So uh, we're into our last five minutes. Is that right? I've got three minutes. All right. Uh, one last piece of advice for GMs from our GM masters. That's a game master master. That's interesting. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel, can you start? One off? last piece of advice. Or in fact, whoever comes up with something, I guess. Uh, yeah. Oh, Daniel on bring it on me. Yeah. Oh, give me some. Give me some time. You yeah. have three minutes, right? <laughs> no, you don't have three minutes. Everybody's got three minutes. Oh, shit. I mean, damn. What's one last piece of advice? Maybe something that we haven't brought up yet today in the discussion? Um, just something that happened to me in a game yeah. I ran the other day. Um, I realized as we were beginning a scene that I was using, um, there were two sets of rules, and I was using the other set of rules for this type of scene, but oh, the players were loving it. They were clearly engaged, it was going to work for them, and I knew that it was, was functional to use the other, so I just didn't interrupt them. We ran, and that was how this game, this game was run with these players. So uh, I feel like we all kind of have to make that kind of a call occasionally, where uh, do we stop it right now and put the brakes on? and fear that maybe the players will lose their confidence. And it is okay, at least sometimes, to make the, the, the choice to use what's working in the moment rather than what's technically should be done if you're not uh, if you're in danger of losing your, your player's engagement. Uh, when players bog down in discussions as to what to do next, never be afraid to guide them by uh, recapping uh, what, they're, uh, what they've talked about so far and also by uh, subtly bringing back the obvious thing that they should do that they thought about and immediately dismiss for some weird reason <laughs> and bring that up and reframe <laughs> that as a thing that might actually lead to a successful outcome. Thank you. When you're gaming, that's your table. Everybody else is there to have a game with you, but you're taking on the responsibility of that space. And it's okay to have boundaries about that space, right? Don't feel bad or awkward about reinforcing those if you need to. I literally thought of mine like a second after I said I couldn't. Um, 
the, as the GM, I, I like to say that it's your job to be the biggest fan of your players. You know, sometimes we get caught up when we write these these campaigns and we write these stories, and when the players don't go through with what we want, we get really upset because like, no, this is what I wanted to do. But it's our it's our job to also you know make the players look awesome and, and let them tell the story they want to tell. You know, I, we were playing my game Ross Rifles uh, just like an hour ago, and one of the players wanted to go get an animal for their squad. This is a World War One game, and wanted to get a beaver. So I said, absolutely, let's do this. So I pull up on my phone and I said, are there beavers in France? There are. And so we had this like whole other side plot where we went to this wonderful French farmhouse and they had bread and cheese and they captured a beaver. And they brought it back to the front. And this was Passchendaele. Um, but it was amazing. I hadn't planned it. So this beaver went from a bucolic French farmhouse to Passchendaele. Yes, the worst exactly. Battlefields in World War One. Yes, excellent. And with that, we are out of time. We're here for our panel. Thank you. If it's okay with you, would it be possible to take a giant panel selfie? If 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 you are okay with that. Giant yeah. panel selfie. Yeah. Yeah, yes. go make it happen. So with, with everybody, the moderators. So oh, we're, we're facing back toward the audience. Yeah, like that. Oh, okay. I want everybody in it. Sorry. If possible. It's, it's all how stretchy is your arm, Daniel? Very stretchy. Corey's in it? Okay. Are you in it? Okay, here we go.